Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray you'd help us to understand your word, that we might conduct ourselves always in a way that will bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation to others. Help us, Father, to use the gifts that you have given us to build your church, to build one another. So help us to use those gifts in love, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight, friends, the rubber hits the road on the controversy over speaking in tongues. So far in the lead-up in chapters 12 to 13, we've seen that true spirituality is not about gifts, nor about spiritual euphoria, but about the confession of the Lordship of Jesus. So in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, you see, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, we do not acknowledge Jesus. With the Spirit, we cannot but acknowledge Jesus as Lord. For as it says in verses 12 to 13 of chapter 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and are all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, all were made to drink of the one spirit. Now this teaching does not in any way denigrate or deny the reality of gifts. So what about the gifts? Well, they are given for the common good. Chapter 12, verse 7 is one of the key verses to pay attention to. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is a very important verse, friends. Notice three things about it. Firstly, that everybody has some gift, which again shows that having particular gifts are not a sign of spirituality because all God's people have some spiritual gift. Secondly, that to define the church as a spirit-filled church because it uses certain gifts misses the point completely. The sign of the spirit at work is the confession of Jesus as Lord. So the artistic sign of a spiritual church, a spirit-filled church, is not the dove, but is the cross. Not that either, I think, is of any importance because the real sign of being a disciple of Jesus is the love that we have for one another. That's how people are to know we are the disciples of Jesus. But if you are going to go into religious bric-a-brac, then do so with the right sign, not the wrong one. And the right sign of true spirituality is Jesus and his cross, not the dove. Thirdly, Notice that the purpose of the gifts is not private, but corporate. You have been given your gifts for our benefit, not for your own. They are given for the common good, not the private fulfillment, not the private satisfaction, not the private experience, but for the common good. This leads to a discussion in chapter 12 of the relative merits of the gifts and of the seeking of the higher gifts. For in one sense, there is no higher gifts. As all being members of one body, all of the gifts are needed and all of the gifts are interdependent. 
And there is a little bit of a surprise, therefore, at the end of the chapter when we are commanded in verse 13, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Well, what are these higher gifts and what makes them higher? It's not their prominence or honour in public, that has already been dismissed. It's not their show or their euphoria, that's no sign of a spiritual gift. It's not that they are more spiritual or derived more from the Spirit than some other gift, for all gifts are manifestations of the Spirit for the common good. So what is it that makes some gifts higher than other gifts? And the answer is love. Any gift can be used for self-aggrandizement and any gift can be used to serve somebody else in love. To use the gift for your own self-aggrandizement is to misuse the gift. To use the gift in serving somebody else in love is to use it as it has been given for you to use. Using the gift in love is what makes the gift worthwhile. Without love, a gift is useless or even less than useless. So we need to understand love and its other person-centeredness. We need to see the radical difference between love and the gifts. For love is part of the permanent virtues of God. In fact, it is the greatest of these virtues, while the gifts are part of the passing world in which we exist. Now is the time for the building of the church. So now is the time when Jesus has given us the gifts to be used, by which we can work to build his church. But these gifts and this work is passing away like all that is in this world, while love, faith, hope remain. Putting it fairly simply, the fruit of the Spirit are infinitely more important than the gifts of the Spirit. The unspiritual mind is easily confused by the gifts of the Spirit, for the unspiritual mind thinks of them as being really important in themselves, much more important than they are. And the unspiritual, the worldly mind, does not realise the real importance of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, they are the things that really matter. Prophecy, knowledge, speaking in tongues, healings, those are very, very secondary, tertiary, whatever you can say in fourthly. They are really unimportant in comparison with faith, joy, love, hope. They are the really important things. Now you can see what I mean about the unspiritual mind, can't you, in that, the worldly mind. Because the worldly mind sees someone doing great miracles of healings and says, that's what I want. That is the power. That is the work of God. That is extraordinary because he judges by what he sees with the lust of the eyes. Whereas the spiritual person rejoices to see the heart changed such that the person is now living in love and self-control and gentleness and kindness. That is the real work of the Spirit in the lives of all God's people. And it is a powerful work of the Spirit that requires regeneration, a transformation of human nature. 
So with this lead up, we come to chapter 14 and the commands of verse 1 concerning pursue, desire and especially. Chapter 14, 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now he's just outlined love, chapter 13. Now he's commanding that we pursue it, that we prosecute it, that we persecute it, that we run after it. As of first importance, we must pursue love. This self-sacrificial attitude of being concerned for the other person and their benefit, not your own, has been concerned for their other their benefit even though they don't deserve it. This must govern all our attitudes to our neighbours. But of course it must govern our attitude to our gifts as well. For they are given for the sake of our neighbours, for the sake of our brother and sister in Christ, for the sake of the church. They've been given for others, for the common good. And therefore must be used for others, not for ourselves, if we're to use them for love. The point is not, what gifts do I have? The point is, what needs do you have that I can help you with? reverses the way of thinking, doesn't it? When you ask the question, what gifts do I have? You stick your head firmly in your navel. You're mostly concerned about yourself. When you ask the question, what needs do you have that I can help you with? Then you are looking at the other person and seeking to lay down your life for their benefit. And this is the context of the problem that Paul is dealing with in Corinth. For notice verse 12 of tonight's reading in chapter 14. So with yourselves, he says, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, eager for the things of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. If you really want the spiritual things, then your passion and concern will be for building the church, for using them for other people's benefits. The Corinthians were eager for manifestations of the Spirit, but there is the implied criticism here that they're not concerned for building the church. They're not concerned for the very reason for which the gifts are given. They just want the gifts, like Simon Magus back in the book of Acts. So, Paul commands in verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may build up the church. It's not quite what it says there, is it? Especially that you may prophesy. There is nothing wrong and everything right in the spirituals and so earnestly desire them, but in particular, especially, specifically, prophecy. That's the one to desire. And it's not just prophecy that you desire, but prophecy vis-a-vis tongues, in relationship to tongues. For he says in verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for that upbuilding, encouragement and consolation. That is, verse 2 is explaining verse 1. It starts with the word for or because. It's the explanation of why you seek prophecy. 
And the reason is because prophecy is so much superior to speaking in tongues. For speaking in tongues is only going to serve yourself. Prophecy is going to serve your hearers. And therefore prophecy more commonly reflects the character of love. Don't, be, don't forget, chapter 13 said, you can prophesy lovelessly if you want to, can't you? You can prophesy in order to hear your own words rather than to help the hearer. But in general, prophecy is aimed at the hearer. Tongue, tongue speaking, the hearer doesn't understand what you're saying. It's got nothing to do with the hearer. You're better off just doing it yourself. Now, tongues have not been discussed up to this point. It's been mentioned in the two lists in chapter 12 as the last of the list on both occasions. It's been mentioned first in chapter 13 as a useless gift when unaccompanied by love. It's mentioned again in chapter 13 verse 8 as one of the things that will pass away and presumably it's likened to childish talk, though that's not at all certain. Here in chapter 14, it is quite clear that it is in stark contrast to prophecy because of its relative uselessness as opposed to the relative value and usefulness, utility of prophecy. For prophecy builds up and encourages and consoles other people. But tongue speaking helps nobody. And nobody understands what is said. Now at this point, everybody wants a definition of what is speaking in tongues and what is prophecy. But the problem of definitions is twofold. One, there is no definition given by the author. So any definition that we give now is going to be imposed on the text of Scripture rather than coming out of Scripture. The author, Paul, and the readers, the Corinthians, knew what speaking in tongues was. They knew what prophecy was. So he didn't need to define it because they knew what they were talking about. The second problem is that people want a definition. Why? Why do you want a definition? It's so as you can control the subject. And why do you want to control the subject? Well, there's two reasons that I know of very commonly. One is so that you can rule out speaking in tongues or rule in speaking in tongues. You want a definition of the thing so as to, in some way or other, ratify and confirm your own opinion about it. So, I am very wary of giving a definition. I don't want to rule out activities, I don't want to rule in activities by arbitrary definition. We mustn't start with our experience and then find it in the Bible. We have to start with the Bible and then find it in our experience. We've got to interpret our experiences by the Bible, not interpret the Bible by our experiences. So we shouldn't start with our experience, speaking in tongues, prophecy, whatever you may want to call it, and then find it in the Bible and say, well, he's talking about me here. Because you do not know that what you are doing is the same thing that he was talking about. And you are making up now what he's talking about on the basis of what you are doing, which may or may not be the same thing. On the other hand, we shouldn't start with the hostility 
to the experience of others and say, well, look, that's not what the Bible's talking about. It's got nothing to do with it. Let's leave it aside. That's... So beware of definitions. Beware here, because why do we want the definition? And the writer didn't see the need to give it to us. So we've got to be careful not to make it up. That being said, what can we say about prophecy and what can we say about speaking in tongues? These are not definitions, but there are things we can say. Prophecy first. Whatever else it involves, it is a claim to speak God's word to us. That's the kind of basic thing that all prophecies throughout the whole Bible have in common. They're the claim to speak the word of God. The prophet says, thus says the Lord and then continues speaking God's word. The false prophet claims to speak God's word when, in fact, it's not God's word. But what's false is not the claim to speak God's word, it's that uh, it's not God's word that he's actually speaking. So prophecy speaking God's word. It does not need to be an exposition of scripture, like I'm doing at the moment. Mind you, it could be. It will not add anything to Scripture as if something has been omitted by God in the revelation of his Son to mankind, Hebrews 1, 1 1-4. That is, we don't need a 67th book of the Bible. We can also say that all God's people in the New Covenant, thanks to Acts chapter 2, all God's people in the New Covenant, all Christians prophesy. For whenever we say Jesus is Lord, we are speaking God's word. The spirit of prophecy, we're told in Revelation 19.10, is the testimony of Jesus. If you have the spirit of prophecy within you, you will testify to Jesus. If you're a Christian, you will testify to Jesus. All Christians testify to Jesus, therefore all Christians prophesy. That's not to say that all Christians are prophets, but all can prophesy. Prophecy is to be judged by its conformity to the testimony of Jesus, its conformity to the word of God. Prophecy need not come by way of dreams, nor by way of study. But it can come by way of dreams, and it can come by way of study. It can come in any particular way or no particular way. How it comes to you is not what makes it prophecy. That it is consistent with the testimony of Jesus that it is truly the word of God, that's what makes it prophecy. It need not predict anything about the future, though it may. The prophet's word of God interprets the world for you, and that can have implications for the future. You see, we can all make predictions like, Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. That is a piece of predictive prophecy. While all prophecy, all may prophesy, some in particular seem to be gifted in speaking God's word. And they are said to have the gift of the prophet. The prophet differs differs from the other Christians in his ability, his particular ability, to be able to speak the word of God. It's like evangelism. We all can evangelise, but there are some who are particularly gifted in evangelism. And you would say they had the gift of the evangelist. 
But because they have the gift of the evangelist doesn't mean that other Christians don't evangelize. Well, likewise, some have the gift of the prophet, but that doesn't mean all Christians don't prophesy. Well, there's a quick summary, not definition of prophecy. Closest bit of that that I came to definition was to say that prophecy is speaking God's word which is a wholly unsatisfactory definition for nearly everybody because it doesn't say enough, does it? But that's a description, a summary of some of the things that I think I could prove any one of those from the scriptures. What about speaking in tongues? Well, the only time that speaking in tongues is described is in Acts chapter 2, when the miraculous element of it seems to be in the hearing. For when the apostles spoke, everybody heard them speaking in their own language. It's a little hard to know what that description means, really, as to whether I say I'm the Apostle Peter and I'm speaking to you in Aramaic, but one of you is hearing it in Syrian and another's hearing it in Egyptian and another's hearing it in Greek. Or whether the 120 who were there gathered speaking on that day, some spoke in Aramaic, some spoke in Greek, some spoke in Egyptian. It's not described in detail, but it is the very only description of what speaking in tongues is about that we have. The term tongue, and speaking in it, is a way of speaking in a language. We still use the phrase in English. My mother tongue is English. In fact, my only tongue is English. It may involve speaking in the language of angels, chapter 13, verse 1. Presumably they have their own language, and I don't want to tell this to any English folk who are here, but it's not English. Though chapter 13, verse 1, about speaking in the language of angels might just be hyperbole. Even if I speak in the most elevated of all languages, the language of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy. So it's not actually saying it is speaking in angelic language, just a hyperbole. It may be, I don't know. Nowhere is it described in terms of speaking ecstatically. Though the manner of speech is not important about speaking in tongues. But certainly it's always under the control of the speaker. For he is told not to speak unless he has the assured attendance of a translator or interpreter in chapter 14 verse 28 next week's sermon. And we're told that only one, two or at the most three should speak even though many might have the same gift and want to say something. So it's something that is under the control of the person who is speaking. It is assumed that the speech has some meaning, as you'll see in tonight's passage, even if it is not understood by the audience, and even if it's not understood by the speaker, it still has a meaning. And therefore it can be interpreted, although the word used interpreted is also the word for translated. It's exactly the same word. When you, trans when you put it as interpreted, it gives it a particular feeling and connotation and nuance, when in fact it's just the everyday word for translated, as you'll see in Acts chapter 9, verse 36, where the name Dorcas is translated for you. Well, again, I haven't given you a definition of speaking in tongues. I've just told you some of the things that we can know about this phenomenon. So, with this understanding of prophecy and of tongues, let's return to the argument of 1 Corinthians 14. And notice the love of prophecy compared to the love of tongues. 
For Paul, in verses 1 to 25, sees the activity of prophecy as basically loving. Sure, chapter 13 too, he knows that prophecy can be done without love, but the activity of prophecy, rightly done, is to speak to other people for their benefit. As he says there in chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, you're speaking for prophecy in order to upbuild, in order to encourage, in order to console. That is the very purpose for which the gifts are given, and prophecy of all gifts does it. That's the point of the love of prophecy he has, and that is why we are to earnestly desire that gift, especially that gift amongst all gifts. Whereas the love of tongues is basically self-centred. For one does not speak in tongues to others, but to himself, unless there's an interpreter. So there is here in chapter, one, chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, the great put-down of the activity of tongue-speaking. Some people have ignored the lead-up and the point of the passage, and they have lighted upon three clauses in this little section as approving of tongue-speaking, when the whole point of this paragraph and those particular clauses is to set up the contrast that shows the useless, unloving nature of tongue-speaking. So we read in chapter 14, verse 2a, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. In 4a, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. In 5a, now I want you to speak, I want you all to speak in tongues. You see, if you take those three clauses, it gives you a very positive wrap-up on tongue speaking. When you're speaking in tongues, you are personally, privately speaking to God. When you are speaking in tongues, you are building, you are edifying yourself. When you are speaking in tongues, you are doing what the apostle would like all people to do. You can see how those three clauses held together like that gives a very positive rap for tongue speaking. But read the whole verse each time and you'll see the point is the exact reverse. Verse 2, for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. That is, to put it in the Australian vernacular, God only knows what he's talking about. It's just gobbledygook, it's just meaningless, it's just into the air. It's not a commendation of speaking in tongues, it's a condemnation of speaking in tongues, because remember the purpose of speaking in tongues is for the common good. The purpose of the gift is to build up the church. Well, it's not building up the church, and it's not doing anybody any good. So, he's actually a put-down. To say that something is speaking like that is a put-down, even so or so in verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Which is better, to build up yourself or build up the church? The whole of chapter 13 has been about live for others, not yourself. To now find a gift whereby you can look after yourself and not others, it's a put-down. You've missed the point completely if you think that tongue speaking is being given to you for self-edification. 
Tongue speaking has been given for you in order to edify others. If you can't find anybody else to edify with it, then don't do it. It's not for your edification. Self-edification is no compliment. Self-edification is a condemnation of the practice. Or verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but, again the but, even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets it so the church may be built up. I mean, tongue speaking that is interpreted is like prophecy. It builds up. But tongue speaking by itself doesn't build up anybody. This is the greater gift. Now, he's told you back in chapter 12, verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now he's telling you especially prophecy. Now he's telling you why especially prophecy and not tongue speaking. Because by its very nature, without interpretation, it is unloving. And love is the very nature by which you evaluate what's better. Whereas prophecy, unless it is done lovelessly, is by its very nature loving, because it is about the hearer. So what is, the, what is it that makes such a negative view of tongues in comparison to prophecy? It's the argument of intelligibility. You speaking into me in a tongue that I do not understand is of no benefit to me because I do not understand. For how will I benefit you if I were to speak to you in such a way? Such a way that you couldn't understand the word that I said. Now, brothers, verse 6. If I come to you speaking in the tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? I mean, what's the point of talking to you if I am not bringing you any revelation, any knowledge, any prophecy or any teaching? All I'm bringing you is the sound of a foreign language. How does that help you? This sermon may help you. I hope and trust it will. But would it help you if I was preaching it in Icelandic? I tried to pick a language which nobody in this room knows. You can at this moment stand up if you wish to and declare to us your thorough knowledge of Icelandic and that it would be a great benefit to you if I would break into it. And the rest of us can pray that I might get the miracle at this point and be able to do it. No, I'm fairly safe. There's no Icelandic speakers here. Now, how would it benefit you if the whole of this sermon was Icelandic? I would suggest to you that it would be beneficial zero. In fact, nuisance value massive. He likens the activity to musical instruments that play without distinct notes. And again asks in verse 9, so with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible... How will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking, notice it's not to God this time, he'll be speaking into the air. That's what speaking in tongues is. Just making noise evaporates up into nothingness. It's not that you are speaking meaninglessly. Languages all have meanings, he says. But the critical factor is that the hearer, not the speaker, understands. If the hearer cannot understand what the then what's the exercise of speaking? It's completely pointless. The aim is, verse 12, the edification of the church. If you speak in tongues, he says, pray for the gift of interpretation so that you can edify the church, verse 13. 
But it's not only the church. The question is also, how will I benefit myself? So much for the self-edification spoken of in verse 4. It's here denied in verses 13 to 15, which again confirms my view of what verse 4 is about. It's a put-down. For he says in verse 13 to 15, if I don't understand what I'm saying myself, then I'm not myself edified by the experience of saying it. Again, see the importance of intelligibility in the process of edification. Friends, can I encourage you not to go with your understanding of spirituality from the X-Files and Star Wars. They keep putting the pursuit of spirituality over against rationality. You've got to ignore your mind, ignore your brain, and just let the force carry you. Stop thinking and just let the power of the spirit move you. It's the spiritual that's against the rational. That is the pagan way of thinking, not surprising on our television. The Christian way of understanding is that true spirituality will lead to intelligibility, and intelligibility of the gospel leads to true spirituality. What is the mark of being of the Spirit of God? It's the confession of the word, Jesus is Lord. It's an understanding of the Lordship of Jesus. It's as you understand the Lordship of Jesus that you are alive to the Spirit. And as you are alive to the Spirit, so you will understand the Lordship of Jesus. Spirituality and intelligibility are not contrasted in the Bible, but are linked in the Bible. That's why he starts off in chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know when you were pagans, you were led astray to dumb idols. Pagan spirituality leads you to stupidity. Christian spirituality leads you to understanding. Therefore, I want you to understand. And so, to be in a spiritual exercise, which is meaningless, is not to be in the spiritual exercise of the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a different spirit that you're dealing with. It's not him. The person who doesn't know what he is saying when he prays or sings in his spirit needs to pray that God will help him with the interpretation so that he can serve with his mind and not have his mind unfruitful. For we are to serve and to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind. How can I be serving him with all my mind when I haven't got the faintest clue what I'm talking about? To say nothing of being with others. For if you are with me in my times of singing and prayer and you don't know what I'm saying, well, how can you say amen at the end? For what I'm saying might be completely wrong and heretical and you wouldn't know, would you? Because you don't know what I'm saying. Notice, there is nothing wrong with speaking in tongues. Paul does it more than all of them. But be careful at this point when he says that, that you do not assume that you know what Paul means or did. See, here's where what I do when I speak in tongues easily becomes a filter in my understanding of Paul. 
I think he's doing what I do. Well, in fact, he may not be doing what I do. In fact, if he saw what I was doing, he might say, no, no, that's not at all. What do you think? That's a stupid idea. You must hold that open as a possibility, friend. See, what did Paul mean when he said, I speak in tongues more than all of you? It may mean that he was more multilingual than the rest of them. He was, after all, an international travelling evangelist with a great mind, and we know he knows Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and Latin, and so he may mean just, I'm more multilingual than the rest of you. I speak in foreign languages more than any of you. He may mean that. I'm not saying he did. I'm just opening possibilities so that you won't close possibilities down and read the Bible through your experience. It is unlikely that he means he prays and sings privately in tongues more than all of you, because he's just said he'd prefer to do it with his mind. So that is very unlikely he's now saying, well, I do that more than all of you. And he certainly doesn't mean that he prayed and sang publicly in tongues in church because that's explicitly what he's going to condemn. So what did he mean? Let me explain Paul by giving you an offer. An offer that you shouldn't be able to refuse, really. It's the $20 offer. I've been making it for years now. Still waiting for the first person to take it up for me. Here it is. I have five cents. Put it right there on the edge of the lectern, which is sloping, so it's always dangerous. But there it is, five cents. I'm happy to donate that five cents to anybody in this room who would like to give me $20 in exchange. It's quite fair. I give you my five cents. You give me your $20. That's a good offer, isn't it? I mean, that's an offer that's hard, hard to resist. I know you're all reaching for your pockets right now just to see if you've got a $20 note, just to be able to come up and give me $20 for my five cents. Like I say, for years I've been making this offer and I still haven't had anybody doing it. And you can rest assured that anybody who wants to come and do it for me tonight, that I'll find a few more five cents so that we can back it up and keep doing this wonderful trade. My five cents for your $20. It's not a stunt, it's genuine. I really will take your $20 and I really will give you my five cents and not just for the sake of the crowd, I'll take it home and put it in my bank account. Everybody I've shared this with so far thinks it's a bit ridiculous. But that is exactly the point Paul is making in verse 19. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Five cents for $20. It's a deal, isn't it? It's a good deal. I'm happy for it. Well, five cents for 10,000 cents, if you'd prefer that. I'm happy. Whatever you like. For five words are compared to 10,000. They're not, they're contrasted. It's nothing to do with comparison, is it? Nobody in their right mind would confuse five with 10,000. Nobody thinks that five cents is worth $20. Public speaking in tongues in church is a worthless activity. That's what's being said, isn't it? 
If you don't think it's worthless, cough up your money, because i got my five cents ready for you. Of course you think it's worthless, don't you? You don't want my five cents at the expense of your money, do you? Well then, why would you think that speaking in tongues is worthwhile in church, in public, when Paul puts it in the rate of five to ten thousand? So, as we would say in the vernacular Australian, grow up. That's what verse 20 is saying more discreetly. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. There are things to be naive and childish about. Evil, for starters. Never be embarrassed about being naive concerning evil. That you haven't experienced it, that you haven't done it, praise God. Don't feel disappointed that before you were converted, you didn't live a life of wicked degeneracy. Rejoice and be glad that you don't carry all the baggage from having lived a life of wicked degeneracy. In terms of evil, be babies. But in thinking, in understanding, be mature, be adult. Don't go on being children. Again, notice spirituality is not opposed to rationality, not opposed to the use of the mind. But the use of tongues is often spiritual immaturity. It is a childishness that is reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 13, 11. I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Part of what we need to understand as adults is the strange purpose of tongues that is taught in the Old Testament. For from Babel to Babylon, we are taught to see foreign tongues as the sign of God's judgment, not his salvation. It's only of salvation in Acts chapter 2 when foreign tongues are turned on their head and everybody can understand something. I mean, what is the use of tongues? It's to communicate with people. People who would otherwise not understand us. But to be unable to communicate intelligibly because of speaking in tongue is a sign of God's judgment upon us. So Isaiah chapter 28, which we read as our first lesson in verses 11 and 12, is quoted for us here in verse 21. By people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners I will speak to this people and even then they won't listen to me, says the Lord. That's why when you walk down George Street sometime, and everybody walking past is speaking in Japanese and German, you know that we actually lost the Second World War. If they're all speaking in Russian and Mandarin, you know we lost the Cold War. But around the world you will hear people speaking in English, for the war has been and is being won by the Americans and Bill Gates. And whichever is the dominant culture, dominates through its language. And so when you hear foreigners and foreign language being spoken, you know that you are the outsider. So tongues are a sign, he says, for unbelievers, that they have come under the judgment of God. It's not a sign for them that they are saved, it's a sign for them that they're lost. So when an unbeliever walks into the church and he hears us all speaking in unintelligible language, he'll say, you're mad. We are. 
but he won't hear the word of God from us because nothing can be understood by anything anybody's saying. And so the word of God that could have saved him is not spoken to him. And he goes out the door as unbelieving as he came in, but now also convinced that the believers are mad as well. Whereas, prophecy is the sign for believers. For by it we are taught and challenged, comforted and consoled. By it we are built up. By it we know that God is still speaking to us. So when the unbeliever comes amongst us and as we speak God's word to each other intelligibly, he will hear God's word. He'll be convicted by the truth of God's word and his own heart will be exposed for its sinfulness and perhaps he will fall down in repentance and worship God. Prophecy is the sign for believers that converts unbelievers. Speaking in tongues is the sign for unbelievers that leaves them under the judgment and condemnation of God. If you are to say that genuinely now, in the last 30 or 40 years, there has been an outpouring of the Spirit of God to send speaking in tongues into the churches of the world, then that is a declaration of the judgment of God on the churches of the world. For that's what speaking in tongues is. It's the sign of the judgment of God. Grow up in your thinking. Think as the Bible thinks. It's quite different to the way the world thinks, isn't it? That is, conversion comes from intelligibility. It comes from understanding the gospel and having an understanding of ourselves through the gospel, seeing ourselves as God sees us, which the word of God brings us as it speaks of our sin and our judgment and offers us mercy and forgiveness. So what is 1 Corinthians 14 verses 1 to 25 saying? In summary, it's two things. And you see them there in verse 39. Verse 40 summarizes the rest of the chapter. Verse 39, the first half of the chapter. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. For by prophecy, the church of God is built into Christ-likeness. For prophecy, by prophecy we could love and serve one another, therefore earnestly desire it. But you may think from what I've said that therefore I would say you mustn't speak in tongues. But no, no, there's nothing wrong with speaking in tongues per se. Indeed, we mustn't forbid the speaking in tongues as if it were a sinful thing to do. Nothing wrong, there's nothing sinful in speaking in tongues. It just has its place. It is a gift of God for the common good. If it is used properly, then it can even be edifying to the church. But how can it be used properly? When can it be used properly? What is the way to use it properly? That's next week's sermon, second half of the chapter. 